Greetings, this is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, we're going to continue a series uh, that I started last week. Um, I, in the last Word Magazine, did a brief review of an article, an online article uh, that was posted in 2023 by T. David Gordon on textual criticism. And that article appeared in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, magazine or periodical, which is called The Ordained Servant, that is directed towards officers of the church. And I pointed out then that there had been a series of some three articles that had appeared uh, in the latter half of 2023 in The Ordained Servant addressing textual criticism. And I did sort of the initial article, review of the initial article by T. David Gordon that was putting forward a rationale for the use of reasoned eclecticism as opposed to the majority text or the received text. Uh, and then in the December issue of 2023, the editor decided uh, to um, post two articles, sort of a point-counterpoint. Uh, one of the articles was written by a ruling elder in one of the churches named Bruce A. Stahl, which was the case for the majority Greek New Testament. And then he asked T. David Gordon to write yet another article uh, making the case for recent eclecticism. And one of the things that I pointed out that I thought was a little bit um, unusual about that is T. David Gordon in the September 2023 uh, article, initial article, said there are three choices. There's majority text, received text, and the modern critical text. And uh, so far in the ordained servant, there have only been two options that have been put forward, the majority text and the modern critical text. And in fact, there have been two articles now by T. David Gordon that are in favor of the modern critical text, one in favor of the majority text, and zero in favor of the Texas Receptus. Um, I wasn't sure I would have time to or interest to do another uh, article in this series, but I had a little bit of time today and I thought, you know, let's just go ahead and do part two. And I got to tell you, I was surprised. I surprised myself when I looked at the time, how much time I gave to uh, that review of T. David Gordon's uh, article. I did not mean to go two hours and 15 minutes. Um, I hadn't done a long podcast like that in a long time. Usually my podcasts have been shorter. Um, and I'm not sure what this one's going to be like, because it's a long article. Uh, in my defense, uh, Gordon's article is really long. And um, this article by Bruce Stahl is not short. Um, so anyways, uh, let's go ahead and get to it so we don't get too far behind and see if we can have uh, continue this conversation about textual criticism of the OPC. And as I noted last time, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, sitting here on the sidelines. I'm a confessional Reformed Baptist. I'm not part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But I think this conversation is interesting because the positive thing I took away from last time is the whole conversation about the text of Scripture seems to be appearing on the radar screen uh, among some evangelicals and particularly among some confessional Reformed people and their churches and denominations. And so um, I, I think it's interesting that they are having this public discussion. And I commend uh, the editor of The Ordained Servant 
uh, for, for making the effort to have this type of conversation. So now I've pulled up the December 2023 ordained servant. And again, there are the two articles, uh, Bruce Stahl's The Case for the Majority, Greek New Testament text. And then there's an article, The Case for the Eclectic Greek New Testament text. And for today, we're going to be looking at the article by Bruce A. Stahl. And yeah, there we go. It's up there. And I think there's an identification of him at the bottom of the page. Yeah, it says Bruce A. Stahl serves as a ruling uh, elder at Covenant Family Church, OPC, in Wenzel, Missouri. And so uh, this brother uh, serves there as a ruling elder. And so let's see if we can look at his article. And kind of like the last time, I have skim read the article. I have not read it hyper closely. I don't have any notes. So it's going to be more of my ad hoc uh, comments, uh, extemp extempore comments on the article. I do have, I did pull down a couple of Bibles. I brought my um, my regular preaching Bible with me. I actually picked up the New King James Version because that was quoted a lot. Um, and I brought along modern critical text to take a look at. I even brought a copy of Wilbur Pickering's Greek New Testament according to Family 35 because I had just uh, a couple of passages that uh, Brother Stahl mentioned I had briefly looked up. So anyways, um, let's go ahead and launch this uh, this review of Bruce Stahl's article, The Case for the Majority Greek New Testament Text. So um, he begins, the question that gives rise to inquiry is, given the variant readings of the Greek manuscripts and New Testament books, can we know without a doubt what is the word of God to be translated into English? So he starts off with a good question. It's a foundational question. What is the text of scripture? Uh, we could argue about translations all day long. You know, do you want to use the ESV, the New King James, the King James? But really the question is not uh, the wording that is used, but the question is what is the foundational text upon which the translation is based? And so I think Bruce Stahl ask a good question. And he says, when I first took my faith in the promises of God's word seriously as a teenager 50 years ago, so I'm guessing Bruce must be, um, what, in his uh, 60s, I'm guessing, he said, I began reading the Bible using the New American Standard Bible. It had numerous marginal notes that made me wonder whether we really had the word of God. You too may have had similar questions in your mind, perhaps when reading your own version silently, while simultaneously listening to another person read out loud from a different version. Not only is running into these differences disconcerting, simply because differences suggest uncertainty, but sometimes the differences in meaning also seem material. I'm going to stop right there. I think he starts off with an interesting point. Now, he's a ruling elder, and so um, I'm, I don't know Bruce personally. I don't know his background. I know he's in Missouri. Um but I'm, I'm assuming he's not, and he's he's not uh, been ordained for pastoral ministry. He's probably not been, uh, done a seminary degree, and then div. He may have. I know there's some ruling elders who have, 
But um, so he's going to give us more of a lay older perspective. I think he starts off where many people in the pew start off. I think I, I made mention last week uh, to the article that appears in the Why I Preach and the Received textbook uh, that I helped co-edit in 2022. And one of the articles is by my friend uh, Howie Jones, uh, who is a deacon uh, in a church in Vancouver, uh, in British Columbia, in Canada. And his article in Why I Preach and the Received Text starts off in a kind of similar way, because I know Howie, and Howie uh, has told me before that his interest in the text of the Bible began when he heard a pastor from the pulpit talking about textual variants, and he found it disconcerting. And so I think some uh, ministers and some scholars who think that this is an immaterial issue and we can just talk about these things and it's not going to cause any upset from people in the pew and read, need to really listen to people like Howie Jones and Bruce Stahl, who are telling us that conversation about the text can be disconcerting. And I'm assuming he's saying this happened to him when he was a teenager. So going back 50 years, um, it was disconcerting to hear about discrepancies, uh, not just in translations, but in the text upon which translations are, are based. And so he's going to give an example here. And one of the things I liked about this article uh, uh, that Bruce wrote is he gives lots of examples um, of places where there are differences, where there are differences between the readings in the TR, the reading in the majority text, the reading in the modern critical text. Uh, and he also gives examples where sometimes the TR and the majority text agree with one another against the modern critical text, and sometimes where the majority text and the modern critical text agree against uh, the TR. So anyways, I appreciate uh, his uh, labors in this. So he gives us first example. Uh, when we read Colossians chapter 2 with the New King James Version and the English Standard Version side by side, we run into a different meaning in verse 18. And he first gives the New King James Version, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up. I'm going to stop there because it's going to be this, this phrase, intruding into those things which he had not seen. The ESV of this same verse, Colossians 2.18 reads, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And it's going to be the conflict. It's New King James, it says, which is based on the, on the TR, intruding into those things which he had not seen. Whereas in the ESV, based on the modern critical text, it's going to be going on in detail about visions. There's no mention of not seeing something, but there is positively a mention about seeing something, visions. And then uh, Bruce Stahl continues. Brother Stahl says, a footnote in the ESV indicates that about visions could be translated about the things he has seen. And this shows clearly that the underlying text 
refers to something contrary to the underlying text that the New King James Version translated. In the ESV, the Greek text is missing the word not. And this is not just a matter of a difference in translation, as Stahl is pointing out, but this is a different in text. In the modern critical text, there is not the negative particle there. And so is he going on about things he has seen? Or, as in the traditional text, is it he's going on about things he has not seen? Um, and then he continues, while the primary objective of the exhortation of the two verses is not altered, one of the characteristics of the described spiritual enemy is much different. In the New King James Version, it is one who, who is inappropriately focused on something he has not seen. And in the ESV, it is one who is inappropriately focused on something he has seen. He's making a great point here. Um, people can tell you all day long that the textual variants don't make a difference for theology or, or meaning, but they do, in fact. If you change the text, surprise. Um, it's going to change the way this, the passage reads. That's going to affect meaning. That's going to affect doctrine. Uh, it's going to affect the whole area of bibliology, this, the super area uh, of, of bibliology. Um, so uh, let's continue. Uh, he, he says, uh, another example of a change meaning is found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The New King James Version reads, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. I won't stop there, because the issue is going to be this little phrase, and he who sat there was. And he points out now, because the Revelation 4, 2, and 3 is based on the Texas Receptus. The New King James is translating the received text uh, here. But he says the majority or the Byzantine text omits. And he who sat there was. So that it would be, would be translated. He doesn't um, give us a translation I'm assuming this is his own translation. I'm not sure how much uh, Brother Stahl knows Greek or if he's piecing this together based on the notes in the New King James Version, which tell you that that phrase, and he who sat there was, is not present uh, in the majority text. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne like a jasper and a sardius stone. So is, is it that the one who sat on the throne, as in the New King James Version, is like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance? Or is it the throne itself? And so uh, Stahl rightly explains, the New King James Version indicates that the one who sat on the throne was like a jasper and a sardius stone, while the Byzantine text describes the throne itself to be like a jasper and a sardius stone. This leaves two different impressions and is confusing to the reader. And I think he is reinforcing, again, a very valid point that the uh, translation you use based on the text that undergirds it, um, if, you, if you use that one and someone else in your church is using another one or a different one, then there is a difference in the reading and often a difference in the meaning, and this can cause confusion among people in the church. And I see this as uh, tangentially and even directly 
arguing in favor of the uniformity of using one translation within a church. Um, but anyways, um, so he's given us two examples now. In the first example, it would be a place where um, the Colossians 2.18 would be, would be a place where the TR and the majority text agree because they both have that negative particle uh, over against the modern critical text, as in the ESV, which does not have the negative particle. However, in this example from Revelation 4, verses 2 and 3, it's a place where the, the TR is at variance with the majority text reading. Um, he continues, the authority of the New Testament comes from God. The Bible itself seems to speak against confusion regarding what is the word of God. Furthermore, the Westminster Confession of Faith seems to support what the Bible says. Um, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So he quotes 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the New King James Version, saying, you know, Paul was urging the church at Thessalonica or commending them for receiving his words, not merely as the words of men, but as the word of God. And then he quotes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, which is on the doctrine of scripture, paragraph four, which affirms the authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, etc. He continues, as with the Thessalonians, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith received the word of God as it is in truth. And they built the whole of its system of teaching upon the word of God. Their reception was true of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. They recognized that the authority of the word of God himself, they, they recognized that the authority of the word was God himself. Focusing on the New Testament, Christ told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would remind them of all that he had taught them. And he makes reference here to John uh, 1426, the comforter will come and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have spoken to you. Uh, let's just skip to the next paragraph. He says, those who received the written New Testament as books or letters in its original language had confidence that they were hearing what they were hearing was in fact the word of God. They wanted to make sure that the churches had the word of God available to them and they made numerous copies of it. The Bible repeatedly implies that the followers of Christ have the word of God. And he quotes also Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, so he's saying the things he's covered so far is when there are different translations based on different texts, there can cause confusion in the, the hearers. Uh, and he's covered his second point maybe is that Christians ought to receive the Bible as the word of God. And so if they're confused about what the Bible is, this can undermine their understanding of receiving the Bible as the word of God. So he's going to move on now to a, re a reason to favor the majority family manuscripts. So he's going to say from this, he's going to make an argument for the so-called majority text. By majority text, we mean uh, the text that is found in the majority of extant manuscripts. It's important to include the word extant because uh Many, many manuscripts have been lost, were destroyed uh, through persecution, through wear and tear. Of the manuscripts that exist, if you were to gather up the ones that exist, what is the reading that is found in most of them? And the majority text position, sometimes called the Byzantine text position, is basically 
a view that says we should use the the reading that is found in most of the currently extant manuscripts. Um, so he continues, not only were the original written documents inerrant, but from this perspective, the church also carefully copied the written word. Um, so he's going to kind of try to come to terms with um, the original written documents. He calls them inerrant. I think he's using the language here. He may or may not be aware of it. That's typical of modern evangelicals that that make a distinction between the originals and uh, and the and the copies. And Warfield and others said the Bible was inerrant without error, only in the originals. And um, I've made the point, others have made the point, that actually, uh, if you look through the Westminster Confession of Faith, you never see the term inerrant. The term that was preferred was infallible. The scriptures are infallible. And the argument has been made uh, by many, uh, recently Richard Brash, uh, a, a scholar who's a missionary in Japan, um, has made the argument that the uh, the men of the Reformed era and the Protestant Orthodox saw a practical univocity between the autographs and the faithful opographs, the faithful copies that they had. Um, but I think uh, Elder Stahl is still using some of this old 19th century language that wants to talk about the inerrant autographs, but the errant copies. Um, at any rate, uh, I continue, or he continues, this premise seems to be expressed in the first portion of Westminster Confession of Faith 1.8. Um, the Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek were immediately, were immediately inspired by God. Let's go on. The premise attaches it to the necessity that what was written in the original languages would be available to all ages by God's singular care and providence, with emphasis on God's governance over the process as with God's providence in all of life, often using means within his creation to accomplish his ends. He used the activity of men to preserve the purity of the text. Go to the next paragraph. Again, from this perspective, the New Testament in the original language was and is available to those interested in seeking it. The Greek New Testament is presumed to have been often copied on papyrus numerous times. When used frequently, the papyrus medium deteriorated much faster than the medium of paper today. I'm going to pause here for a moment. I'm not sure why he's jumping on, onto the papyrus necessarily. Um, we actually don't have much remaining, much extant uh, papyri, and majority text arguments aren't based, aren't made based on the existing papyri because we only have, uh, you know, in the low uh, 120s, 130s of extant papyri, but they're 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 made based on uh, the much later uh, copied uh, extant uh, so-called minuscule manuscripts that were not written on papyri, but were written on vellum and then eventually on paper um, in the in, in the later stages of the hand copying transmission process. Anyways, he continues, um, people who had reliable Greek manuscripts would have used them uh, more than those manuscripts that were not reliable. The manuscripts that were relied upon and therefore used wore out. So he's making an argument, he's, he's making an argument, I guess, 
uh, for the majority text, because some people might say, well, if, if the majority text was the dominant early text, why don't we have more early copies of it? And most of the copies that we have are later. And he's making arguments been made by others, people like Wilbur Pickering. Um, well, the reason we don't have early manuscripts or papyri manuscripts that reflect the Byzantine text uh, to the degree that we might wish we had is because uh, they were used so much that they wore out. Uh, whereas the the manuscripts that support the modern critical text, the minority manuscripts, um, they weren't used very much. They were set aside, and they weren't they didn't continue to be copied. Um, he continues, um, the manuscripts that were relied upon and therefore used wore out. So as to continue, <coughs> excuse me, using the word individuals copied more manuscripts, and this copying continued. Throughout through the life of the church, most notably among the Greek churches, because they had it in their own language. Those manuscripts that had errors were more likely to be set aside. Consequently, the old unused manuscripts were more likely to survive because they did not wear out. Um, so he's kind of making an argument, I guess an empirical argument for the superiority of the majority uh, text. Uh, and he's making an argument as to why it's better that we can trust the later manuscripts and why the earlier ones were destroyed. I'm going to skip ahead, and you can probably tell I'm not. I'm trying to go a little bit faster because I don't want this to be a two-hour and a fifteen-minute uh, podcast. Uh, hopefully, I am conveying the essence of what uh, Elder Stahl uh, uh, read and the, the essence of his argument. Um, he says, uh, these, oh, here we go. Many of the thousands of manuscripts were lectionary in nature uh, and used for reading and week, weekly worship. And I think probably the people who are the uh, experts in this field wouldn't say they were lectionary in nature, but they were lectionary manuscripts. There were lectionary manuscripts, manuscripts that were copied and uh there were readings that were copied to be used liturgically in the worship life of the church. And uh, he says these majority readings are not generally the oldest manuscripts. Yet again, from this perspective, they likely represent the original documents called autographa because they were faithfully copied. So he's saying that um, the uh, the, the the majority text is found in uh, the lectionaries, and and sometimes the lectionaries can provide the oldest readings and best readings because uh, they were being used uh, by Christians in their worship. Uh, let's go on to the next paragraph. Within the past 200 years, 200 years. Many Reformed theologians have been willing to rely more on a relatively very small number of manuscripts that date back to around 200 or 300. Um, actually, we have very few manuscripts that are in the 200 to 300 range. Uh, we have no unsealed manuscripts. Uh, the earliest would be Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and they're dated uh, at the best to the mid-4th century, so 350 or later. Um, he's talking, I guess, about some some of the papyri, but he's just making the point that whereas um, um, he he's suggesting that whereas Christians in the past uh, used 
manuscripts and the they, the text of scripture was one that was supported by the majority of extant manuscripts starting 200 years ago he says i guess taking things back to the 19th century is when some many reformed theologians most of the people who are in the vanguard of modern textual criticism were not reformed theologians uh they were german lutherans they were um, Anglicans like Westcott and Hort, um, not too many people, I think, who would who would uh, 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 be categorized as reformed, were part of um, the the um, origins of modern textual criticism. Although I agree that da later downstream, many reformed uh, people have have embraced modern textual criticism. But let's keep going. Um, so he talks about uh, how uh, th that they were relying on these early uh, manuscripts who that were minority rather than majority. He says, in doing so, they accept a premise that seems to be contrary. I'm going to expand this a little bit so you and I can see it better. Uh, they accept a premise that seems to me to be contrary to what is stated in chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because these few manuscripts do not always agree with the majority of manuscripts available and often disagree among themselves, they surmise that we do not know in full what the original word of God is that was inerrant. So he says, he's making basically making an interesting charge here that to use the modern critical text is inconsistent with Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 1 because... Uh, these earlier readings were not consistently and continuously used in the church. Uh, they, they were they were used in the 200s and 300s. Uh, again, I'm using his argument, not saying I necessarily embrace this myself. And then uh, they were recovered in the 19th century. And if they had been authentic, they wouldn't have dropped out of use for that long period of time. Um, he continues, presumably, whether intentionally or not, those who accept translations of Scripture that rely more on a relatively small number of manuscripts accept the work of certain experts who placed a large weight on the Vaticanus manuscript, which was rediscovered in the Vatican in the 1700s, and the Sinaiticus manuscript, which was rediscovered in the 1800s. Um, some might challenge this date for the, for the Vatican manuscript because it was cataloged, I think, in the 15th century. Uh, it was known by some of the reformers. Um, it was even uh, perhaps uh, cited in the, uh, like in the King James Version translation, there are two places in the book of Tobit where there seem to be references to the reading that is in the Vatican manuscript. Um, and, that, and so the KJV was 1611. So um, anyways, uh, let's continue. Um, he's just making the point that though that they were relying primarily on two manuscripts. And I think that is a valid point. Most people will agree that people like Westcott and Hort uh, were very influenced by the readings found in, in Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Um, even though they each have observable copying problems, and even though the readings between them often disagree, the experts assign them a high weight of credibility. And he says, we refer to this method as the eclectic text. 
Uh, he continues here and throughout this paper, I'm not trying to downplay the value of experts to people who are not themselves experts. Rather, I'm trying to emphasize whose authority we follow, that of God or the experts. The comparison is, is intended between God and the experts, not between the experts and other people. Uh, so he is making a point in favor of his position. He believes his, his position is, is borne out because he believes uh, that God allowed the majority text tradition to be the one that was most frequently copied, and therefore that gave that gives it the imprimatur of God's favor, whereas the eclectic text, the modern eclectic text, is having to rely on human uh, scholars as experts to reconstruct the text. And I'm sure that the modern critical text people would say, well, God could work providentially through us too. And so that might be part of, an, uh, of their argument against uh, Elder Stahl and his argument. Um, let's continue. So from this perspective, the experts who sought to identify an eclectic text tried to follow specific rules. In doing so, though the rules were complex, simple rules do not work. Um, so here it seems he's taking to task um, some of the canons of modern textual criticism. Um, and he gives an illustration. The eclectic text included a parenthetical phrase from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, presumably because it was found in either the Vaticanus or Sinaiticus manuscript. It is not found in the Texas Receptus or the majority text. And so uh, this is an interesting example that uh, he's pulling up here. Uh, one that I don't, I don't think is, you know, it's not one that's that's frequently talked about, like people talk a lot about the Indigo Mark or the woman taken in adultery. And uh, again, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. And in the ESV, it reads, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And it's that phrase there in the parentheses, though not being myself under the law, that is not in the TR, it's not in the majority text, but it is in the modern critical text. And so this would be an interesting example. A lot of times we talk about how the modern critical text reduces or abbreviates the traditional text. This would be a place where the modern critical text, uh, we would say, from a TR perspective, uh, and also uh, those from the majority text camp would say this as well, that it expands or um, it is increasing uh, the text. And let me just look this up real quickly. I've got my Nestle on 28th edition, and I'll just look up uh, 1 Corinthians 9.20 and look at the textual apparatus for it. And uh, yeah, it's got it there. The whole phrase is uh, set apart as, as, as possibly being omitted in some manuscript traditions, although it's there uh, in the, the, the primary text. And let's see. Um, and he said it's presumably in either Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. I'm looking at the textual apparatus. 
it looks like it's not only in Sinaiticus, it's also in Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, uh, it's, it's in Ephraim Rescriptus and in Kozak Codex uh, Bezai, although it's omitted in D.K. Tsai um, and in the majority text. So um, here, though, um, uh, Stahl is saying the experts do not always agree on how best to follow the rules in each case. And they ultimately conclude that the text of the original autographs cannot be fully identified. He's making an interesting point here. Um, if there were a phrase like this, though not being myself under the law, that appeared in the majority text or in the Texas Receptus, the tendency of the modern critics would be to say, uh, this is obviously a spurious addition. I mean, look, addition to the text. I mean, look, um, there were these pious scribes and they had this passage where Paul was saying, uh, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, and they didn't want anyone to misunderstand as though Paul were affirming the law. And so they added this little parenthetical uh, statement as a pious theological interpretation. Um, but in this case, they're saying because that little phrase appears in their beloved uh, uh, manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and other early uncial manuscripts, they affirm its authenticity. So in this case, it's the weight of these early manuscripts that include this text, whereas if they use their normal uh, canons of textual criticism, if such a phrase appeared in a, the majority tradition, they would say it's a pious expansion. And so it's an interesting point, actually, that he's making about a passage that we don't have to talk about and, and about an incidence in the text where there's a modern critical text expansion as opposed to uh, expansion of the traditional text versus a reduction of the traditional text. Um, and he's also just pointing out that this is an example that just sort of throws into confusion what is the text of 1 Corinthians 9.20. Um, so let's continue. Many modern English Bible versions, such as the ESV, are translated from the eclectic text. When such an eclectic text is compared to the Texas Receptus that was used to translate the KJV and the New King James versions of the English Bible, approximately 10% of the verses in the New Testament are affected. This is based upon the footnotes of the publisher of the New King James Version, which appear to me to have already removed spelling variants unless they had to do with names such as Beelzebul or Beelzebub. In the footnotes, the majority text represents a consensus of the majority of the surviving New Testament manuscripts. Again, in the footnotes, what I refer to as the eclectic text was represented by the 26th edition of the Nestle-Long Greek New Testament and the UBS 3rd edition. So I will say this about uh, Elder Stahl. He has done a very close reading of the New King James Version. Um, and uh, that's, you know, obviously his Bible of choice, his translation of choice. And he, he, he has carefully looked at the notes. The New King James Version, one of the distinctive things about it is it has a lot of notes. It has a lot of notes about the text. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, towards the end. There's some pros to that. There's some cons to that. Um, but anyways, he says 
that there is there are notes that appear in one in ten verses in the New King James Version. Now, I would say respectfully to uh, Brother Stahl that um, that that it's that's an interesting estimate, but I wouldn't put too much weight on it because the notes in the New King James Version are going to be selective. And yes, he's right; they're not dealing with minor spelling variations. But they do not deal with all the variants, I think, that are significant. And, you know, in, in this modern era, people like Peter Gurry have said there are there are half a million uh, variants in the New Testament. Um, I, I think there are many more significant variants. In fact, there are many places in the New Testament where there are significant variants in every single verse that you come to. And there are significant decisions. If you were using reasoned eclecticism, forks in the road where you'd have to make, make you know, multiple choices about how is the text going to read if you don't have a, a standard received text. So, uh, you know, one out of 10, 10% would be daunting enough. If 10% of the text were unstable, uncertain, that would be bad enough. But actually, I think it's even higher. Um, but let's let's continue, though. He's going to go with this 10% based on um, the, the what he's found in the notes of the New King James Version. He says this 10% figure needs to be handled carefully. It include, includes verses where one word may be different, even the use of the article A rather than the, or the use of we rather than he. The meaning of these small words are different, but they do not necessarily alter the thrust of the meaning of a given verse. And he gives an example, the first portion of Revelation 14.1. In the TR, it reads, a lamb, uh, an indefinite article, a lamb, while the eclectic and majority texts read, the lamb. Um, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. So here, it, it, uh, whereas the TR has an indefinite article, uh, a lamb, meaning in the Greek, there's no article there at all. Um, he says the eclectic, the majority text have uh, a definite article there. And actually, I looked at this passage, and I looked it up in Pickering, and actually Pickering's majority text, uh, as with the TR, also omits the, the article. Um, so um, this is a place where, where, again, we'll get to this maybe in the critique of those who have the majority text. This is a place where the so-called majority text is not, is not consistent. Um, and this is actually often the case in the book of Revelation in particular. But his point with this right now is that sometimes it's just a difference of word. Um, he says sometimes the differences only alter the emphasis. For example, the eclectic text excludes of God from Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. If you have the ESV based on the modern critical text, it just says something like like angels in heaven and doesn't include the phrase of God. Whereas if you have a translation based on the majority text, which there aren't any, but anyways, we'll get to that also. 
uh, more likely, if you have a translation based on the TR, whether that's the King James or the New King James, modern English version or the Geneva Bible, it's going to have this phrase of God, like angels of God in heaven. Uh, other times, he says, they may be a bit more meaningful. For example, the eclectic text has up to salvation rather than thereby in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. This would be another example uh, like the one we looked at earlier from 1 Corinthians 9, where the modern eclectic text it actually is longer or expands upon the text. Um, so um, it, in the New King James Version, it's as newborn babes desire the, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, but rather than thereby in the eclectic text, it's up to salvation or unto salvation. In these cases, counting each verse that contain a variant reading seems to be excessive because there were many other words in each verse other than those affected. In a more extreme measure, one could say that 89% of the New Testament chapters are affected by the differences. Uh, I would say every single chapter in the Bible is affected by variants um, if you're going to try to do um, uh, reasoned eclecticism. Because only one variation needs to be found in each chapter for the chapter to be counted. On the other hand, it would be difficult to consider single words or even letters because the denominator is difficult to identify when sometimes the eclectic text has more and sometimes fewer verses. Sometimes entire verses are different or large portions, and these may not receive enough weight in counting them only once as variants. Um, so the basic point he's making is that you can't downplay the significance of variance, um, even if, if, there, if it's a single word, a, a single um, prepositional phrase, um, it affects the overall stability of the Bible. Um, and so uh, this takes him on to a discussion now of the significance of variance to a person's faith. And again, I appreciate the fact that he gave us these examples and they're not the typical examples. Uh, you can tell that he's really studied this matter. I commend him for it. Uh, again, he's not he's not picking the low-hanging fruit. He's not just talking about the ending of Mark or the woman taken in adultery, but showing us that that these variants are pervasive in the New Testament. Um, he says, returning to the difference between the text, a willingness to place in doubt a specific meaning within 10% of the verses of the Word of God seems to me to be a dangerous premise because our faith relies on the written scriptures being available to us and received as the word of God. So he's simply making the point, do I believe the, the Bible has been preserved or do I believe only 90% of it has been pre preserved? Some people might be content with 90%. But he's saying as a Westminster Confession affirming Christian, I can't be content with just 90% of the word being providentially preserved. And kept by God's singular care and providence. Um, he says, some English translations try to point out where variations exist. In doing so, they demonstrate that the readings of the eclectic text, to a lesser degree than TR, are ones that were constructed rather than known. The thoughtful, here he's dashing at the TR as uh, being constructed, so-called. 
The thoughtful reader is left with the notion that not knowing the word of God, we have no fully trustworthy source for following Christ. Rhetorically, one may ask, who is to say that we have the word of God? One could logically think that another older manuscript could be rediscovered and alter the perspective entirely. Great point, uh, Elder Stahl. He's saying if you're if you're relying on reconstruction, then what if a new manuscript is discovered out in the desert? Is that going to mean you're going to alter um, the, the the text of the Bible? Does that mean we have no stable uh, epistemology as Protestant believers who believe in sola scriptura? And this was a point actually that um, T. David Gordon made in criticism of the majority text. He says, "How do you know what the majority is?" What if they discover 10,000 manuscripts out in the desert or, or actually very plausibly, what if they discover 10,000 manuscripts in some monastery at Mount Athos in Greece, in Greece, and this disrupts one's understanding of what the majority text is. That means we don't have the, te the, the text of scripture right now. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit for sake of time. Um <laughs> He says, also accepting that we do not know the precise meaning of the whole of the New Testament, it seems as though only a portion of the scripture, rather than all scripture, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness, um, applies. So some of the variations may be interchangeable, which could suggest that either variation is profitable for doctrine, etc. This may be the case when two items in a list are switched in order, yet such is not true for all variations where words are either added or deleted and where the meaning is entirely different. Um, the second premise also misses the practical implications within preaching. For example, two different preachers teaching from John 8, 59, one from majority of manuscripts and one from the expert selected text are likely to draw two different conclusions for their congregation. And so here he uses yet another um, uh, passage that has a, a variant in it that's not often discussed. It's John 8, verse 59. Um, he points out the New King James Version, translating the Texas Receptus, says, Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The ESV, relying primarily on the expert selected manuscripts, say, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so this is a place which is the more usual scenario with something like the ESV based on the modern critical text, where it reduces, um, uh, it, it makes the, 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 it takes away from the traditional text. And what is taken away is the closing part of John 8:59 that says Jesus, was going through the midst of them and so passed by. And so instead, it has the shorter version, which sort of ends with Jesus hid himself. And he picks up on the fact that uh, if it is this shorter uh, eclectic text version, that it might not reflect well on uh, this report of the character of Christ, that he was perhaps not courageous, and that he hid himself. Whereas if the traditional text is followed, he, he's depicted as acting with courage and walking through the midst. 
uh, of them knowing that he has the father's protection till his hour comes. And so um, he says the preacher using the New King James Version will conclude that Jesus was in control of the situation, hiding in such a fashion as to be able to pass through them and consequently facing no threat until the time of his own design. The preacher using the ESV may be more likely to assume that Christ fled for his life, much as Moses fled when he became aware that his murder of an Egyptian became known to Pharaoh. Even as I, in fact, heard once during, during my many years of listening to sermons, it was not the main point of the sermon by any means, but it was so described. So he remembers, uh, uh, Elder Stahl remembers a sermon he heard where a pastor using a modern translation based on the modern text tried to come up with some explanation, perhaps drawing a parallel to Moses. He says, presumably, if a generally good minister can make the mistake, a reader with less education can make the mistake. In each translation, Jesus removed himself from the situation, but one leaves open the possibility that Jesus fled. Depending on how the preacher uses this text, one can be left with a different emphasis about Christ's ability to oversee the circumstances around him. And so, he's, he's, again, he's making some great points. And if anything, the central point is the translation you use matters. The text that that translation is based upon matters. And it will affect how you preach, how you teach. It will, it, it will affect the meaning of the scriptures and the doctrine in the scriptures. Um, let's continue. Uh, significance of variance to preaching with authority. He says, I'm not a preacher. He's a lay elder. Yet I wonder how a preacher can explain scripture verses with the authority of God when there is a question about the text, such as John 8, 59, or when we have a reasonable expectation to wonder whether another early manuscript is rediscovered. Receiving the text as the experts uh, tend to construct it with the eclectic text is to receive at least a portion of the text on the authority of these experts not merely on the authority of God himself. Um, he uh, goes on now, uh, although most of his criticism has been of the eclectic text, he is going to take a few shots at the TR. He says there's also a difference between the TR and the eclectic text. The majority text represents the Byzantine manuscripts, which are the most numerous. The TR relies on the Byzantine text, with the exception that Erasmus used some Latin variants in preparing the text for printing shortly after the printing press was invented, those who hold strictly the TR who do not seem to be as consistent regarding the providential preservation of the text in all ages. They allow for a shift in the general acceptance of the Greek text just before the Reformation to a slightly modified version at the time of the Reformation. And I would, I would pause here and just say with all due respect to... Uh, Elder Stahl, that I don't think he is properly interpreting the TR view. Um, our view of the providential preservation of the scripture isn't that uh, the, the, the preserved text was always the majority uh, of copied manuscripts. Um, and, and our point is that when you come to the technological revolution of printing, how was God providentially at work? Erasmus uh, was not simply, I think, pulling readings out of thin air. Uh, as a Western man, uh, he was looking at the text as it had been used in the Western Christian tradition. 
what had been used by the doctors of the church in the West. And uh, and those he was drawing upon Greek manuscripts, and he was drawing upon the Western tradition over against uh, the, the majority text seems to be a reflection of uh, passages and, and texts that were used primarily in uh, Eastern Christianity, that, that which will become Eastern Orthodoxy versus the Western tradition, which will uh, uh, not only uh, be represented by the Roman Catholic Church, but the Protestants who come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so um, it's not just that they're they're accepting any reading whatsoever, Erasmus is not. He continues with a few more uh, critiques of the TR, and I want to be fair to his, his critiques of it. Um, he says, while the difference between the TR and the Byzantine texts are much fewer than between the eclectic text and the TR, they still represent the reader with a question of who has the word of God. I agree. Wonderful question. And we're going to get to this. I'm going to give some critique of why I think the majority text is not the proper choice, particularly for a Protestant. Um, eventually, we'll get to it. I estimate that the TR has variations in the Byzantine text that affect 4% of the verses. 1.5% out of this 4% are found in Revelation. And without Revelation, only 2.5% of the verses are affected. Yet this difference is not expected when, quote, all scripture is profitable. And, you know, I think he's making a valid point. Um, in many Many times, uh, those who support the so-called majority text are co-belligerents with those of us who hold the TR in areas like defending the traditional ending of Mark, defending the woman taken in adultery. Um, and he's he's aware of the fact that uh, Revelation has a um, an inconsistent transmission tradition. And, and so if you take Revelation out of the of the equation, um, then the, the the majority text readings and the Byzantine readings and the TR are are quite close to one another. However, um, I think there are some readings that are preserved in the TR and not preserved in the majority text that are problematic for Protestants. And uh, it's one reason why I don't think the majority text is the preferred text. Another reason again in the providence of God when printing was done uh, God did not uh, so uh, work uh, in in the providence of those times and having the majority text is that which was printed and that which became the basis for all the Protestant translations of that era it was the received text that was printed and I think as one who believes in a God who works in history um, and keeps the word by a singular care and providence, we have to deal with what was actually preserved, what was actually printed, what was actually translated. It was not the majority text, nor was it the modern eclectic text, but it was the received text. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he talks about, he accuses the, the TR uh, of relying primarily upon one expert, Erasmus, um, and a few other reformers. And I again, I would disagree with this. I think Erasmus was, I think, used of God. And I think he was influential uh, in, in uh, collecting and, and, and printing and doing the work to produce a printed text of the New Testament. But his first edition of 1516, for example, did not include the Coma Ioanneum. 
And I think there had to, there was pushback given to him. And there were, there were later uh, Protestant scholars like Stephanus, like Beza, um, who, who, who examined the text of Erasmus. And I think the, the, the text of Erasmus uh, was um, improved and approved and received by um, Protestant men. Um, so it was it was not based on merely Erasmus, certainly not on one scholar alone. So I think that's a a, a, a critique against the TR that can be uh, deftly um, um, turned away. Um, Oh, we're almost at the end. That's good. Differences, <laughs> not good. It's been a good article, but I'm trying to get this done in a more timely way than, than the last one. Uh, differences in the premises behind the use of different Greek texts generate confusion for the thoughtful Christian trying to serve the Savior. Such confusion seems inappropriate and would not exist if the church relied upon the copied New Testament texts that have been available through the last centuries. And um, I would say that it's not that would not be the majority text that would be the printed received text that has provided stability and unity and has been uh, literally received by the protestant churches um last last little section here thoughts about favoring of family manuscripts one may conclude from reading the comparison between the majority and eclectic text that adherence to the eclectic text ought to be willing to use the majority text. They limit their concern of the teaching from God, God's word, and they imply that the majority text represents no difference in teaching, yet perhaps they do not agree to that because they want to rely on what they believe are older manuscripts, regardless of how badly copied they were, or because they choose to rely more on academia than on what, uh, what came down through the ages. If so, then perhaps they should consider what readings the ancient Orthodox theologians quote. According to the testimony of Theodore Letus in an audio recording, a proponent of the TR, J.W. Bergen of the 19th century exhaustively compiled such a list. The quotes were readings that correspond to the readings of the Byzantine manuscripts. And so here he's simply saying um, Bergen has shown that the church fathers uh, uh, quoted uh, passages from the New Testament, and often their quotations affirm not the, the modern critical text, but uh, the majority or Byzantine text. Um, and again, we would say that often overlaps with the received text. Um, and But it's interesting that he says that this work was done by Letus, and Letus uh, would take Bergen's work as uh, supporting, uh, uh, um, uh, giving um, support for, uh, with confidence, accepting the received text. Uh, he, his last sentence, work such as Bergen's may be very useful for the church to consider in uniting on the text that represents the very word of God. And I know, for example, with, um, with the ending of Mark, uh, very often, in my argument in favor of the traditional ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, I point out, you know, it's quoted by Justin Martyr. It's it's in Tatian's Diatessaron, and most especially it's in uh, Irenaeus's Against Heresies, where he says, Mark begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1, 1, and, it, and towards the end 
uh, we read this, and he quotes Mark 16, 19. Uh, so, uh, yes, the church fathers can be helpful for supporting the traditional text. Um, again, I think Bruce Stahl's article raises some really good questions. The things I liked about it, he raises the issue that these variants cause trouble for people who sit in the pew. Uh, he raises the question of, do we rely on scholars and so-called academic experts, or do we rely on the, the providence of God? But given that, I would say with all due respect to Bruce Stahl and others who hold the majority text, um, what you really should be holding to is the received text. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a little article that appeared in the Bible League Quarterly last year. And let me see if I can just pull that up uh, for a second. Here it is. And um, my article, uh, and this is from my academia.edu page. Uh, anybody can look this up and have access to it. Again, this is from the Bible League Quarterly. This is the July, September 2023 issue. And I pose five questions about the majority text um, posed to its contemporary evangelical and reformed advocates. And here were some of the things that, that I said. Um, first of all, what, first question, in print. Um, so Bruce Stahl, for example, was saying, uh, it seems that the, the TR is based on the work of Erasmus. Well, the reality is, Talking about the majority text is not something that, that Christians have been talking about for thousands of years. The majority text, the majority Greek text was only printed in the late 20th century. Uh, and, and so um, no one talked about the majority text at the time of the Reformation, for example. And so if you, if you, if, uh, as Stahl says, you have to have a text that that shows evidence of usage uh, over the years. Um, there was no printed uh, Greek majority text until the late 20th century. Um, second, Protestant standard. Uh, if the majority text is the reserved two texts of the Greek New Testament, why did God in his providence not allow the reformers and Protestant Orthodox to recognize it as such? and make it the standard for scholarship, preaching, and Bible translations. Uh, the third question, and I raise this in my critique of T. David Gordon, if the majority text is a reserved true text of the Greek New Testament, why have no widely used Protestant translations of it ever been made in any language? What I would say respectfully to uh, Bruce Stahl and anyone else who says they hold to the majority text uh, over the TR or the eclectic text is what translation do you use? Because there aren't any. There are no widely used um, uh, translations of the so-called majority text of the New Testament. If you really convictionally think that that's the New Testament, you should use a translation based on it. Otherwise, you're using a translation that would have passages you don't believe are the word of God. Um, and, and so why are you doing that? Uh, and there's a, there's a reason, though, why there aren't uh, any widely read translations of the majority text. 
I think the reason is that the sheep have not heard the voice of their shepherd in the majority text. Otherwise, there would be widely used translations of it. It's not the basis for scholarly study. It's not the basis for, for translations. Um, and, and, and so, and, and it never has been uh, in the Protestant tradition. And, and even before then, there are not vernacular translations based on the majority text that were among the ancient versions, for example. Um, let's see, let's go on to my fourth question. I uh, I raised the question, is there a majority text? And um, I talked about this a little bit already, but especially when it comes to uh, the book of Revelation, um, and I cite in the article a chapter uh, written by a man named Tobias Nicholas, who notes that there are only about 300 manuscripts which contain some part of Revelation, the book of Revelation, only four of them are dated earlier than or close to AD 300. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, yes, we some, we have you know sometimes thousands of manuscripts of the Gospels. But when it comes to Revelation, we only have a couple hundred. And many times, those that we have might be just fragments or pieces of the book of Revelation. And for that reason, you cannot empirically say this is what the majority text of the book of Revelation is. Um, there are differences among those who print editions of the majority text. So there is no majority text for the book of Revelation. And I make another point uh, in this article. If you look at places like Romans 13.9, um, and you look at the some of the printed so-called majority text editions, there's a little phrase within uh, Romans 13, 9, uh, the phrase, thou shalt not bear false witness, which is omitted in the Hodges and Farstad Greek New Testament according to the majority text. It's omitted in Robinson and Pierpont's the New Testament in the original Greek Byzantine platform. It appears in the TR, but according to Wilbur Pickering, it is the majority text reading is found in 67% of the extant Greek manuscripts and excluded in only 33%. And so this would be an example of a place in the New Testament where in the printed so-called majority text, it doesn't follow the majority text. So these inconsistencies, as I point out, especially related to the book of Revelation, show that there really is no majority text. And then the fifth question, I think something else we all we also talked touched on a little bit, and that what that is that if you if you accept the so-called majority text, you're really accepting another form of reasoned eclecticism. Um, you're just giving weight to external evidence, and 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 again that could change if there were a discovery of more manuscripts. And again, we've got problems with the with the book of Revelation as to what actually the majority text is. And so if you choose the so-called majority text, you are choosing a methodology that will only result in perpetual eclectic uncertainty about what the text of the Bible is. And if you haven't read my little uh, article here um, about the majority text, I would commend it to you. I would add a, a, a maybe a sixth reason 
this, this, I was thinking about this today. A sixth reason to reject the majority text position is it only addresses uh, one half of the Bible or one part of the Bible. It only addresses the New Testament. It has nothing to say about the Old Testament. The wonderful thing about the received text position is it's a position that uh, has an Old Testament text position and a New Testament text position. The Old Testament, it affirms the Masoretic text. New Testament affirms the received text. Uh, the so-called majority text position only talks about the New Testament and doesn't provide um, a rationale for, for how you receive the text of the Old Testament. And so I think um, that position, the received text position, uh, is superior. I, again, with respect to Bruce Stahl, let me just say one more thing. I think in some ways, having read through his article, um, his article, I think, in many ways, is more of a rationale for the New King James Version, why he likes the New King, King James Version. And with, re with respect to the New Testament, uh, I, would, I would say the New King James Version is better than the ESV because it's based on the TR. Um, but there are other problems with the New King James Version. Um, one of those is the, the problem of the capitalization of the divine pronoun. The translators make choices sometimes as to whether the he or the you is referring to God or whether it's referring to a man or a creature. Um, there are also issues with the New King James Version and many other modern translations with direct speech and use of quotation marks. Uh, there are no quotation marks in the old Protestant translations like the Geneva Bible or the, the King James Version. And I think as a translation philosophy, that is superior. There are also problems with the New King James Version where it tries to set apart poetry and the translators make choices about what is poetic and what is not. And as I pointed out in the Kept Pure in All Ages conference um, last year up in Wisconsin, especially when you look at the, the Song of Solomon in the New King James Version and the way they've tried to set it out as almost in a, in a theatrical kind of way between uh, a chorus and speakers and so forth. That's not in the original text and I think it can be very confusing for readers. And the last last thing I might just point out because I, because I think uh, Brother Stahl has been so influenced by the notes that are in the New King James Version. And this is this is one of my copies of the New King James Version. You can see how, how um, I, it's been used a lot and read a lot. I used to preach from the New King James Version before I came to uh, convictions about the authorized version being a better translation. And just one more thought about the New King James Version, one of the problems with it. And one thing is, if Pastor Stahl is concerned with the person in the pew being confused by what a preacher says about variants, might he also be concerned about what his Bible says about variants? And so if you have the New King James Version for study purposes, for a pastor, for a scholar, for an, a, a lay elder in the church, might be helpful to have some of those scholarly notes. I'm not sure that's always going to be helpful for the person in the pew. It might um, undermine their trust in the authority of Scripture. And also... Um, the, the, these notes are outdated. 
Um, so, so the New King James Version, when did it come out? Um, uh, came out copyright 1979, uh, uh, and then 1980, 1979 must have been the New Testament, 1980, the New Testament and the Psalms, and then... Um, looks like 1982, the entire Bible. So from 1979 to 1982, uh, to the entire Bible came out in 82. So what it's, uh, it's now uh, 46 uh, years that it's been uh, out so from 82. Is that, is that right? No, 40, 42 years it's been out um, here. It's 2024. So um, it's been out for, for, for this amount of time, but it's using the notes, the text notes that are in it are, are text notes that uh, were completed, you know, 40 plus years ago. And so the information in it isn't always accurate. Let me just give you two examples of that. Uh, in the passage about the woman taken in adultery in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, in the New King James Version, I'm glad it's there. There are no brackets around it. Um, so it's accepted, it's received as part of the text because it's, it's basically based on the translations based on the received text. But the note that is found at John 7.53 that's in the center, it says, in you, that's the Nestle United Bible Society or the modern critical text, brackets 7.53 through 8.11 as not in the original text. They are present in over 900 manuscripts of John. So if you're uh, somebody's reading this and you, you come to this, you think, hmm, is present in over 900 manuscripts of John. Well, how many manuscripts are there total? Is 900 good or bad? And um, so you know, now in 2024, those, the, those numbers are, would be calculated differently. And I just looked um, in my little uh, booklet that I did for the Trinitarian Bible Society on why John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is in the Bible. I, I had a little bit of discussion about the external evidence, and I cited there um, some of the uh, evidence that was shared by Maurice Robinson. And he says now, this is on page four of my little booklet, he says uh, the PA, the Pergpe Adulteri, the woman taking adultery, appears in at least 1,476 extant Greek manuscripts, and it is omitted in only 267. So that's 2024. That's that's more, and it's perhaps those numbers have slightly shifted since even I got that information and wrote it down here. Um, but someone might read this and they hear it's in 900, but they're not told how many it's missing from. So does that give them greater assurance about its uh, reliability? Plus the information now is outdated. We know it's in nearly 1500 manuscripts, not just 900. So that's one example of, of how the New King James Version might be a little bit dangerous because the information, even that textual information that you might like, um, may not uh, be accurate. And the second example uh, that I thought about was in Romans uh, 13. And this is the passage that uh, I already made reference to because 
It's a place where the printings of the majority text do not follow the majority text because there is a phrase in there, you shall not bear false witness. And that's actually omitted in the printings of the so-called majority text. However, if you look at the text note in the New King James Version at Romans 13, 9, it says, in you omits, you shall not bear false witness. And that's correct. It's not in the Nestle or United Bible Society of Modern Critical Text. But what he doesn't say is, what the, the New King James Version text notes don't say is, it's also omitted in the majority text. So, um, and oddly enough, it's a place where the TR actually preserves the reading that's found in the, in the majority of extant manuscripts and the printed editions of the majority text and the, the modern critical text both omitted, if that makes sense. So my main point is the New King James Version, um, the notes now uh, after uh, 42 years are, um, are outdated. And I don't know if they'll ever do an, an edition of the New King James Version where they update those notes. Well, friends, I'm going to bring this episode of Word Magazine to a conclusion. Um, I, I think, again, just one more reflection on this. I, th I think it's interesting that the editor of the ordained servant, he realizes there's some conversation going on about the text of scripture uh, among the OPC. And back in September, he invited T. David Gordon to do an article uh, on defending the modern critical text. And then Bruce Stahl uh, sends in an article. Here's, here's a, I want to, I want to defend the majority text. And so the editor says, okay, we'll, we'll let you, Bruce, we'll, we'll put your article in there, but then I'll ask T. David Gordon to do another article defending reason eclecticism. And again, what's the one position that hasn't been represented yet in the ordained servant? Um, I know for a fact that there are OPC ministers, uh, active ministers serving churches, uh, serving institutions, who hold to the received text. Will, will, will it be possible for there to be one of these articles appear in the ordained servant that represents uh, those who hold to uh, the Reformation text, the traditional text, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament and the received text of the New Testament. I think it'd be interesting. Um, and it would be, you know, it would it would really help fill out the discussion if that were to take place. I don't know if it will or not. But again, positively, it's nice to know that they're having this conversation. It's nice to know the editor thinks this is something worthwhile. So I'm thankful that in the OPC and in other denominations, these types of conversations are taking place among the ministers, the leaders, the officers of the church. Well, with that, truly, really, I want to bring it to an end. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Word Magazine, and I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of Word Magazine. Till then, take care, and may the Lord richly bless you.